Some brands offer you low finance or cashback or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and €1,000 cashback and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finances made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See Renault.ie. Welcome to another podcast by InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports, your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Ross Martin and Greg Barnes. Guys, it's been a couple weeks since we got together. I know summer brings vacations and other responsibilities, but uh, we got to do a podcast, and let's talk about what our listeners want to hear us talk about. Um looking at the inside Carolina premium board. And if you had a chance to read it and you're listening to this, um, you could have posted a question and we could get to it right now. So we're going to take dead leaves questions and we're going to build off those. And, uh, Ross, since you posted the thing on the message board and I'm come to you first guesses on which rising sophomores and juniors and or juniors take the biggest leap next season. Uh, there's quite a few to pick from, especially the three bigs. I think the answer to that question comes from those guys, but your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it has. The first thing that came to mind was Sterling Manley, just because he hasn't played a lot of basketball because of his injury in high school, his two injuries in high school. And I think we just saw brief flashes of what he can do uh, his freshman season and just a whole nother year in the training and conditioning and weight training and just getting a more comfortable feel for the game of basketball at the college level will make him take a huge leap from year one to year two. Um, we saw some of the skills he has in terms of just the little offensive uh, flashes here and there and his ability to, to keep the ball high and rebound at a high level. But I think he can really step in to be a big-time player uh, for UNC, not only next season, but even more as a junior and senior. I know Greg kind of has spoken about him being – uh, an all ACC type player when he's an upperclassman. I think next year will be key in kind of seeing that growth and what he can do. Cause at times he was great. And then he, he wasn't consistent. Neither was Garrison Brooks. Uh, I think just more minutes, more games to pick up. All those things are going to be huge. And I really think UNC found a diamond in the rough with Sterling Manley coming in over, you know, outside the top 200 in recruiting and not really getting the big offers. Um, of course, Steve Robinson and, and Roy Williams found him, and I think that's going to be a, a payoff from what UNC kind of got in recruitment, knowing where they were at that time in the recruitment phases, especially with bigs, which have had a little trouble recruiting in uh, in recent years. Greg, one thing's for certain, the roster is going to just look weird for the first couple months of the season without Barry and Pinson in there. Um, so these guys are going to have to step up, and I tend to agree with Ross. I mean, I think Sterling – Manly is the guy. Yeah, I think he, if the natural progression holds up, and what Dean Smith always used to say, that the biggest jump from freshman to sophomore, the biggest jump a player will make is from freshman to sophomore. Um, So I think Sterling Manley is the easiest choice. Do you agree or disagree with that assumption? Yeah, I think so. But I think there are are other guys there that, uh, are in the equation. I mean, Sterling for sure, you know, provided he gets through his final running test, which I have no reason to think that he won't. Um, he, he's the guy maybe with the highest, highest ceiling, but I mean, Brandon Huffman is an incredible athlete. And, you know, we talked last summer that maybe he's the guy that so aggressive and, and physical that can provide some valuable minutes. Um, and clearly, you know, his first year was a tough year for him. And he wasn't able to beat out Manley or Brooks for, for playing time. But you know, maybe he can make tremendous strides because I think he has the skill set uh, to be effective uh, you know, at some point in his career. But the the other guy uh, beyond the, the bigs that I think you know, really could, could make us a big step, and really because UNC needs it, is a guy like Andrew Playtech. Uh, I don't know that you know, Playtech – the next year or two is going to be a guy really pushing for a starting position. But I do think with the absence of Theo Pinson and Joel Berry, 
uh, it's going to be critical for, for North Carolina to have some solid options off the bench to really help. And I think as the freshmen come in, they're going to be really good at times and they're going to struggle at times like all freshmen do. And so while we, we know what UNC has in Kenny Williams uh, and, you know, Cam Johnson to an extent there on the wing, um, I think you got to have guys coming off the bench that can provide valuable, solid minutes. You know, the whole thing with the Roy Williams is, uh, you know, when you come off the bench, do not hurt us, right? Give us quality minutes where there's not that big of a drop-off. And so I think a guy like Playtech, who's very heady, very smart, provided some very good minutes at times last year, is a little bit more mature than his years, I think. That's kind of uh, how he, he looked to me at times. I could see him really taking a step forward and being a, a solid option off the bench. And I think that kind of thing is critical for, for a team as young as North Carolina is going to be next year, trying to kind of find their way about who's going to be the leader, who are going to be the guys in the perimeter that to be consistent weapons for us to have somebody like Playtech potentially to come in and just kind of keep things steady. Uh, I think that's invaluable. Who do you think plays more next year, Greg Playtech or Brian Robinson? That's, that's a good question. Um, and I think, I think with Cam Johnson uh, and Nas little re- really being in the position of kind of dominating that, that three spot. Um, I think the minutes for Brandon are going to be a little bit tough. Uh, but I do think, you know, Brandon showed last year that he had made some strides. Uh, if he can continue to put on a little bit of weight, uh, continue to build confidence, he's a guy that can come in and give good minutes as well. But I think Playtech, just because of what's ahead of him, is probably in, in position to, to get some more minutes there. Uh, I don't think we need to really – well, we, we can kind of go there. We can address the two bigs versus small ball, I think. Greg and I tend to agree that it's going to be two bigs, Ross. You may differ there. Um, anything since we last addressed this, maybe a month ago on this podcast, I just see Roy Williams, he's going to do what's best for the team and what helps the team. But I think initially we're going to see um, the more traditional North Carolina lineup, and that means your guy, Nas Little, starts out on the bench. But I- anything that you've uh, heard or, or seen, tell of in the last month that maybe change your idea that uh Nas will start and they'll play more of a small lineup like they did last year yeah and the question we're talking about here is is the thoughts on how much small ball UNC will play versus going back to traditional bigs uh just kind of flesh out the the question that was asked by a subscriber um I mean it's kind of like what what I think versus what you know Roy thinks I mean, I, I just think you, you put the best five out there, and I think that it's going to be super, super hard to keep Nas Little off the bench. And we've talked about this so much and how it doesn't really matter who starts and it more matters who's there at the end and who's getting the more minutes. And I think Nas Little will be definitely one of the top three or four guys in terms of minutes played next year. And he's just I mean, he's just too talented to, to not play in that 30 range. And, and his size allows UNC to, to use that small lineup with Cam Johnson, Nas Little, and, and Luke May as kind of your three forwards and um, and be just as effective as, as they were last year because Nas Little can guard the power forward position. So it's even – even he, like a Theo Pinson, obviously he's not going to have the experience and maybe not the initial toughness and physicality, but he the body-wise he seems like he can body up and be an athletic force going against a team's um, power forward. And I mean, this is how basketball is kind of evolving too with the small guard lineup. We see it all the time in the NBA and we've seen it with teams uh, in college basketball as well. So it's a question we'll explore many, many times between now and then. And I think the best five includes Nas Little. Yeah. I think, I think the interesting dynamic is, if you go back to, I believe it was 12, 13, uh, when PJ Harrison moved into the starting lineup against Duke, North Carolina went small ball rest of that year, lost to Kansas in a lot of the same way. They lost to A&M. It's got overpowered inside. Um, but I, I think last year Roy went small kind of because he really had to out yeah. of necessity. I'm very curious to see, but I don't think there's any question he's going to try to, you uh, force feed that that traditional lineup next year, but you know, Ross, as you've said, uh, Roy's 
stubborn, but he's not stubborn to a fault necessarily. I mean, he's, he understands that the best players are going to play. And you know, the guys that play are the guys that earn it in practice. But um, I would like to see a scenario where North Carolina is equally as effective, both playing big and with that small lineup. So I think if you can do both very well, not one out of necessity, I think that's very interesting because now you're saying, okay, well, you know, say Manley takes that next step that we all think he's capable of. When you got him and Luke May in there and against certain teams, that's going to be just overpowering, right? And that, that's an interesting dynamic that you have that to go to. But against teams maybe like Duke, where they've got more guys out on the wing, you can slide Little or slide Johnson to the four with Luke at the five, and now you have a completely different lineup uh, that you can use, and you can go back and forth between the two. And it's not a matter of, hey, well, we've got to go with this group because that's by far the best group we have. It's more of, all right, which way do I want to go today? You know, which way is best for us in this particular situation? And we we haven't seen a whole lot of that out of North Carolina. We, we saw it during the uh, the championship game runs, the two previous years where Roy would go with a small lineup for just for a, a few plays, a few minutes here and there, and it would really work. And so to see him kind of embrace that and how that can potentially work, provided one of the bigs uh, matures to the level we think can, I think that's that's an interesting thing to watch play out. Yeah, lineup versatility. I think that's a great point there. You know, being flexible with it and maybe just mixing up the starting lineups every other game, keeping the fans and keeping the opposition guessing. And because they're so young, you don't have an entrenched senior or junior other than Cam Johnson um, that could be potentially benched, you know, with Garrison Brooks and certainly Manley and Nas Litter. They're both sophomores and, and juniors. There's not that, you know, you have to start them because there's a senior there. You know, you can't feel slighted at that age that you're maybe taking a back seat one game for one player. Um, and then maybe starting the next game and, and mixing up like that. So I do like that idea of, of playing the matchups and having some versatility to the lineups. I think it's always interesting exploring the idea of speed and quickness versus size. I had a middle school PE coach who also coached football who told me that the most important thing he looks for when he's coaching middle school and high school football was quickness. doesn't matter how big you are. It was all about speed and quickness and middle school and high school football and I was coach Keegan I always remembered that because I thought it was so interesting so with UNC you have the kind of the the two sides you know do you go big with a, a Garrison and Sterling and Luke May or do you rely on that quickness and go small and I think it's an interesting topic to explore not just for basketball this day and age across you know college and uh, professional level but also in football and how Fedora has you know gone with speed and, and versatility and flex, flexibility with his offensive scheme versus bigger players and a um, an offensive line that, you know, just put, goes downhill. I think the way the NFL game is changing, it also kind of indicates the value of speed and quickness and versatility in these variety of offenses and how it kind of has evolved over the last couple uh, couple of years, not to kind of drag the conversation in a completely different direction. No, I mean, that's an interesting point, but uh, I've always, you make me think about the kids that you grow up with and, and they're 12, 13, and 14 and they're studs and then they never grow again. So they're they're pretty quick and they're pretty good at that age. And then when you get to high school and beyond, they're the same size, the same quickness, and everybody's moved beyond them. And uh, big quick smashes little quick all the time. You see that with football teams, especially. Let me, let me get back to basketball, though. Um, you're making me reminisce on the old days, Ross, and that's not good for an old man. Uh, Greg, looking at the final stats of 2017-18 season, I find this interesting. First of all, Luke May and Joel Berry played the exact same amount of minutes, at least on the official stats at Go Hills. 1,193 minutes apiece total. But when I look at these stats and I hear Roy Williams plays a ton of players and I hear Ross talking about, you know, maybe switch up starting lineups. Uh, Roy Williams played five guys, roughly 30 minutes a game. Pinson 29.7, Cam Johnson, 29.3, Luke May, Barry and um, 
Kenny Williams above 30. And that's it. The next highest was 15 minutes. So while he plays a bunch of guys, he doesn't play a bunch of guys a ton of minutes. So how do you think that changes this year, Greg, if it does at all? Because quite frankly, I don't think it does at all. Um, but it may. And Roy Williams may do something different. But the bench is long, but it's not quite as long as it appears, at least when you look at the final stats. Yeah, and I think it was one of those weird situations where you know the Jalik Felton situation played out the way it did, where they really thought that you know, he was going to be a guy early in the year that they could slowly bring along. Uh, he kind of stubbed his feet a little bit, didn't uh, grow into the position as well as they liked, and then, of course, he you know, gets kicked off the team. Um, and so you're left with a situation where Seventh Woods was was hurt a lot of the year. You really didn't have a backup point guard. Um, and so Joel had to play a lot of minutes. And then when you, you end up going small because the bigs really hadn't come along as, as quickly as Roy had liked, you're really stretching your main perimeter guys. Uh, and so that's that's kind of the thing is that North Carolina was a little bit strapped last year uh, with their options. And uh, if Roy, what Roy has always done, and we have this conversation every year, and I, I, the old heads get it. Uh, and I think some of, the, some of the younger, newer fans or maybe the fans are more casual fans. Uh, it takes them a while to kind of pick up on it. But Roy plays a ton of players early in seasons. Um, and the idea is to give them a lot of experience. You know, he, he doesn't necessarily just play for a single season. He's playing for the program. He's playing for a period of years. He wants to develop these kids to give them plenty of playing opportunities. And he does that primarily in the non-conference slate, a little bit in the start of the ACC. And then with the hopes of by the time you know, mid-January comes around, He's got an idea of the guys that are going to be able to give him a lot of quality minutes, and he can really start kind of start trying to kind of pare down the the lineup a little bit. Now, if he can go eight nine deep, then he'll do it. Um, and he still played, you know, plenty of guys uh, throughout the ACC season, decent minutes, just not as much as maybe what previous teams have had. And so I think next year. Because you don't have a Theo Pinson, because you don't have a Joel Berry, guys that you know can carry the workload, I think you will see a lot more players get you know, a fair distribution of playing time just for Roy to be able to say, okay, is there enough of a separation between these guys that somebody is going to warrant getting 30 minutes a game compared to this other kid playing in the same position, maybe only getting seven, eight, whatever. Uh, so I think I think from that standpoint, there's not a big of a gap, especially uh, with Theo and, and Joel not being there. And so that that's going to be the thing to, to watch. And then I think with the three kids coming in, um, all of them have the potential to demand playing time. And you combine that with what we were talking about earlier with some of the freshmen taking that sophomore leap. Now you got more guys in the pot uh, capable and able to play quality minutes. And then that's when you start to see the minutes kind of uh, spread out a little bit more and you get a deeper rotation as opposed to what we saw last year. Yeah, and to add to that, I mean, we might even not know – we might not know who the point guard is. You know, it could change throughout the season and even into December and January where maybe Kobe White takes over for 7th Woods or maybe really gives a guy like K.J. Smith a chance at some time in November and December – or you never know who is going to step up at point guard, and that's going to greatly affect you know who gets minutes when, how much minutes each guy gets, and at what point in the season one guy kind of takes over that Roy Williams rolls with for ACC play. That's, I think, going to be the most intriguing thing to see how Roy Williams and the coaching staff handle the point guard position next year and how it evolves and happens. Um because obviously we know how important point guard position is, and we kind of know what UNC has um, with with Woods and what Kobe White can bring and the other options there. So, I mean, that's going to be crazy interesting uh, moving forward. So, Greg, what can we expect from K.J. Smith? And I'll be honest, I have no idea. I, I know he's got good bloodlines. His father was certainly one of the best point guards ever at North Carolina. Um, but what have you heard or read or seen 
that uh, North Carolina fans can expect anything other than um, him playing a solid bench role. Yeah, I, I think it's a little tough to expect him to kind of be the dominant uh, presence uh, that maybe nobody expected just because you know, throughout the year last year, we didn't receive a lot of intel about, hey, KJ has blown it up in, in practice. And sometimes you do hear that, you know, when there's, there's somebody kind of uh, showing out in practice, you know, like Luke May. We heard about Luke like his freshman year. Guys are saying, man, that guy, when he gets going, you got to watch out. And you just kind of like, okay, well, we'll pocket that for later. And then, of course, you know, now in hindsight, oh, okay, I should have paid more attention. Uh, ne- haven't necessarily heard those types of things. I uh, have heard that he's a, he's a quality you know, point guard. He's got a good body, 6'2", 180. It's a kind of ideal size. Uh, I would suspect they want to put a little bit more weight on him if possible. But he does look just like his dad, uh, kind of build wise. And so we'll have to see. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to blow him up or knock him down any just because of a lack of information that we have on him. Uh, but he clearly, you know, Rudy Williams has said he's going to be in the mix. Um, and so he's going to have the opportunity to, to earn playing time uh, with that, that quartet of guys battling for that point guard spot. Yeah, I actually spoke with uh, Kenny Smith at uh, Kenny Smith Sr. Uh, in New York while I was there for the AC tournament at some NCAA th- kickoff thing that I went to. And and then I talked to KJ Smith walking to uh, the arena at the NCAA tournament because he was just staying in a random hotel room because he, he can't stay with the team. And I think the, the, the word I got from talking with father and son is that there is a clear rec- – uh, you know, clear – they can clearly recognize there's an opening and a chance to kind of step into a role and that there is, you know, there's an opportunity that exists there for him to get big minutes and expand his role. And if he works hard enough and, and if the skill is there and everything, you know, he has a chance. And I think that's kind of the idea moving forward. I mean, he was given a walk on role for, for a reason and it could eventually step into a scholarship position as well. And I think obviously there's, some promise there that he can help the team in some way, maybe just as a backup role. But if that's all he can do, that's perfectly fine uh, for for what UNC needs, a stable, you know, reserve point guard. Before we go to break, let's talk about the last question that was asked on that thread on, on the Inside Carolina Basketball Premium Board. Do either Barry or Pinson get drafted, and would they be able to make it in the NBA? And, Ross, I'll stay with you. I mean, Pinson getting a – late combine invite certainly helps his chances yeah my philosophy on this is that the nba personnel and front office guys they know exactly who joel barry and theo pinson are there's hours and hours of tape there's four seasons worth of games um they can see they know who they are they know if they're skilled enough whether they can shoot where they can pass where they can defend they can rebound so there's no questions or surprises that the scouts have um, surrounding Barry and Pinson, which is why, you know, the NBA is all about potential, which is why I think they'll draft some random European guy over Barry and Pinson just based on the potential and the unknown there. Cause they kind of know that they, they know what they're getting with Barry and Pinson. They can either sign them or, or look at them later when they're in the G league. So I, I don't, it doesn't seem like based on mock drafts either and get drafted, um, you know, page went real late during his draft in 2016, I think he went number 55 overall. Um, you, you know, maybe they take a flyer late just to get him in, in, into camp with one of those guys. And it's going to be a struggle. I think for I think it's going to be a struggle for Barry to stick in the NBA just because of his size and his inconsistency as a shooter. I think Pinson still has a little untapped potential and could work into some role somewhere where he becomes – uh, a guy who can guard a player like LeBron and guard a, a player of that size and and be a facilitator and maybe find a role in a very niche way with a team that recognizes what he can do if he can develop more offensively. Greg, your thoughts there? I mean, I just – it's going to be tough for Barry. It's all about opportunity. But I agree with Ross. I think Pinson's got some ability that translates into the pro game you know, I think he gets more of a shot. Um, whether he cashes in on it or not remains to be seen. But I think he gets more of a shot. I, I certainly, they're going to make money playing basketball somewhere. And folks say, oh, they better learn how to speak French or, you know, German or whatever. 
Um, I had plenty of friends that played ball. Well, not plenty, a couple that played ball overseas. And that's some good money to play basketball and live tax-free in Norway um, while you're playing a game. So, Greg, your thoughts on Barry and Pinson's chances? Yeah, well, I think with with Pinson, I, I agree with both you guys. I, mean, I think if Theo Pinson shot 38% from three-point land last year, uh, no doubt he'd be a you know, first-round type guy. Uh, but that's the element of his game that has to improve because he's he's got a great eye uh, as a facilitator. I love that aspect of his game. He's got good size. Uh, he's versatile, can play so many different positions, uh, good team player, good locker room guy. So he checks so many boxes. But if you're 6'6", and you're not necessarily a dominant like point guard type guy, you have to be able to shoot from outside. And uh, I know last year was a down year for him in that regard. So that's going to be the thing for him. It would not surprise me whatsoever if teams say, you know what, we just have to see it first. And you know, either they they take him late and they put him in the G League or they just kind of let him go overseas and give him a year or two and, and try to really improve that aspect of his game. And if that aspect improves a lot, then it would not surprise me to see him work his way onto a lineup because, um, yeah, I mean, the way the the – the game has, has shifted in recent years. I mean, you know, Golden State is the is the standard bearer. And, I mean, that type of player, you know, like a Sean Livingston type player, although I know Sean's you know, a, more of a true point guard than Theo, but that type of long, versatile guy that can give you quality minutes, that can do a lot of different stuff, that can use his length, I, I think that's invaluable with the way that teams are playing ball now. And the fact that Theo played on a team that, like to get up and down the court. He's comfortable with the ball in his hands. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot to like there, but he's got to be, he's got to improve his outside shooting for him to be able to stick with the team. And then Joel, I think that the issue for Joel is, as everybody knows, is, is the height. Um, you know, if he was a, a lights out three point shooter, um, then maybe you can kind of get away with that, but he's not. Um, and he, he's not the best at ISO. Uh, so it's going to be very tough for him to, to find ways to score. He's a gritty kid. I mean, he's tough as they come. There's value in that. Uh, but you have to do something really well uh, to kind of stand out if you're going to be you know, a six-foot point guard at the NBA level. And so I, I think he's probably destined to, uh, to play overseas. Although, you know, I didn't, I didn't think Marcus Page had, had a lot of hope uh, to play at the NBA level. And clearly – uh, he's kind of been able to, to hang around a little bit. And so I'm not, not knocking him out quite yet, but just a lot of hurdles that he's got to address. And, uh, you know, he's, he, he did a lot of good things at North Carolina, clearly. And so maybe he can sur- surprise some people and, and make his way onto the team as a, as a solid backup somewhere. Let's take a break. We'll go in a different direction when we come right back. Some brands offer you low finance, or cashback, or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and €1,000 cashback and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finance is made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See Renault.ie. All right, we've handled the Inside Carolina basketball message board questions. So, Ross, I'm going to turn to you on your Twitter question. You threw it out there. Send us some questions. We got a few. It's interesting how the message boards mostly give us basketball stuff. Twitter is usually football-related. So let's talk briefly about football. And to the guys asking about uh, Joe Burrow, the Ohio State transfer, checked inside Carolina Tar Pit Premium Board. There's a ton of information on there about him. But, Ross, why do Larry Fedora coach teams always come out flat and unprepared against in-state rivals with significantly less talent? Um, shots across the bow to Fedora and to the in-state rivals. Uh, but your thoughts? I mean, I don't even know where to start with this one. Um, I would ask, 
why why is he always losing bowl games and always losing the games he has the most time to prepare for like the like bowl games and the uh season opener a la Georgia South Carolina um what was it Cal this year as well um I mean maybe maybe Greg's better for this one but I don't think there's any I mean, it's not like he's purposely doing it um maybe there's uh something in the locker room we're not seeing uh, I'm going to abandon ship and let Greg take a dive at this question about the flatness against in-state rivals. Greg, any thoughts? Nice. <laughs> I, I will I mean, say what, do you really, what do you say to that question? I don't really know how to even answer it. Well, I, I do think your point there, and Greg, you're you're getting in on this, whether you like it or not, um, about more time prepare, less prepared, it appears, versus short weeks. That they have a better record or better winning percentage on four or five day weeks than they do on uh, two weeks or more. I would wager, Greg, uh, you're the stat guru and, and you're up. <laughs> yeah, I don't have that stat in hand, but I think you're right, Tom. I, mean, I think Larry has a pretty good record on, on short weeks. Um, look, people don't want to hear this, but I, th- I think the, the the fact of the matter is is that North Carolina – uh, under the Larry Fedora era, and I guess 2012 is a little bit of a exclusion. Although I, I, I realize they lost to to Wake and to Duke that year, and Fedora has admitted that you know, some of those games they shouldn't have lost. Uh, but that was really the only year where they had just an overwhelming abundance abundance of, of talent. Uh, you can make the case for 2015, and they took care of business uh, that year against against the Wolfpack and, and the Blue Devils. But I, I think it's really a matter that David Cutcliffe has done a good job at Duke. Uh, that program is, is not the same program uh, that you know, Mac Brown, uh, John Bunning, Butch Davis for the most part, dominated for so long. Uh, and, you know, I think State's had some good teams. State hasn't had necessarily great teams, but they've had solid teams. And so you have to factor that in. And then, of course, Wake has had some pretty good teams over the years. So I don't think the talent discrepancy is as severe as some people may think. And I understand uh, you know, 24-7 sports. Uh, it's, it's bread and butter is recruiting, and, and Don Callahan does a tremendous job for us. Uh, but I, I would like to know Don's take on this. But I would assume Don would say that you know, the, the difference in, in talent level is, is probably not as extreme as, as the ranking sometimes suggest. Um, I think when you get to the top 10 type programs where you start having depth of, you know, a four star as your, your third string cornerback, that's where it really comes into play. And I think you can find quality guys uh, as three star type talent in North Carolina, Wake, Duke, uh, ECU, even to an extent. Uh, can can pull some of those guys and fill some decent teams. So I think that's the primary reason against the, I guess the in-state teams, even though I know that's not an answer that a lot of fans probably want to hear. In terms of the, you know, the other games, the bowl games, um, we can go through them and we can make uh, suggestions. I mean, 2013, clearly they won. 2014, uh, that, that team was just done. I mean, that, that was a locker room issue. That was a chemistry issue. Uh, that was really a problem. 2015, uh, I, I don't know what to say about that because that was really just a, a very poor performance against an undermanned Baylor squad. Um, that was that was really surprising. And then in you know, 2016, I mean, you're talking about a, a very good Stanford team out in El Paso, which is about as far west in Texas as you can get. So that was that was one of those games where it was a game that North Carolina had a chance to, to win there at the end weren't able to get it done. So I don't think the bowl games uh, speak to too much issue. And then with the, with the opening games, I mean, you're talking about you know, Georgia uh, and Kirby Smart's you know, first game. That's, that's a good team. North Carolina probably should have won that game, though. Uh, and then some of those games against South Carolina uh, with Spurrier there is tough. So all that to be said, uh, I don't know that you can make some vast generalization that Larry Fedora uh, really struggles when he has a lot of time to prepare. I do think and we've seen this with Paul Johnson over the years, I do think when teams that maybe aren't as familiar with Larry's offense uh, can really take a few weeks to, to get a good look at it. 
they can figure out some schemes and try to slow it down. And we have seen that in some of these these games where uh, UNC's offense is not as productive as maybe what we would expect. I think that probably has something to do with it. Uh, but, you know, it, it's how it goes. And uh, Larry will be here, I think, at least one more year, probably a few more after that. And so we'll get some more data points and uh, we'll, we'll see how things go. But uh, no question that when North Carolina travels to California on September 1st, if UNC loses that game, this point will be brought up yet again and it will continue to be a, a talking point throughout the uh, 2018 season. Ross, did Greg handle that as you thought he would? Because I, I think he pretty much did and hit on yeah. all the points. That's why That's why he's the master right there, man. Just send him all the questions I don't want to answer. Nice. Well, you, you're gonna have to answer another one because <laughs> okay. we're going we're going back to Twitter, and you got no choice. All right. Because uh, this is something that I can't answer. Is Fedora finally going to add a vertical element to the passing game this year, or will his play call result in just more of the same or more of what we've seen from Heck and Cap the past two years? <laughs> I will I will say that it's easy to go deep multiple times when you've got guys like Switzer. Uh, yeah, that can get out there all the time. And maybe ARW is that guy this coming season. Uh, but your yeah. thoughts on that? I, I mean, I just think you can't – you can spread it horizontal, but if you can't go vertical, you're going to get worn out. Um, and and yeah. Carolina suffered that fate of late. So Greg will be better to talk about the schematics <laughs> of this, but but I have some personnel <laughs> things here. I was just kidding there. There's, there's three parts to go into this. I mean, you have to have an offensive line that protects your quarterback. Um, good pass protection that gives them some time. You have to have a quarterback who has good timing with his receivers and they can throw a nice deep ball and have confidence putting it up there and and put the offense in position and take some shots at different points in the game. And you have to have receivers that can create separation, um, give a window for the quarterback to throw it and, and you know beat the safety and, and beat the corner to get those big pass plays. I think – with Trubisky, they had a, a pretty good offensive line. They had a quarterback who had great timing with his, with his receivers. They had Mac Hollins and, and Bug Howard and, and Ryan Switzer, who all were veteran receivers who were, you know, very well adept at, at getting separation, especially Mac and at times Ryan as well. And so that played perfectly in 2016. I think last year they just didn't have the quarterback. And, I, uh, you know, Brandon – Harris probably had the best arm, but he wasn't the most accurate. And the other guys are running around too much in the back to really get anything, get anything done. I think you brought up a great point with um, ARW, uh, Anthony Ratliff-Williams. I think he's a, a great deep threat. We saw flashes of that in 2017. I think Diami, Will, uh, Diami Brown and Jordan Adams are both deep threat guys who can have the speed and the skill uh, to be deep threat receivers if the, the quarterback question can be answered. And I think that's the biggest question um, entering the season in terms of uh, Larry Fedora and the offensive staff and their, their plans to go deep. I think they would love to go deep. And I don't think it's a knock on the coaching staff um, in terms of, of schematic things. I think it's more a knock on the intricacies of the offense and, and having the personnel to be able to do that because it's not worth it if you're going to miss out you're going to miss on the deep throws and, you know, it's more beneficial to, to chip away like we maybe saw more last year as opposed to what we saw uh, with Trubisky and, and previous uh, more skilled quarterbacks. Greg, does Jace Reuter see snaps this year? Live snaps? No. No chance? Well, there's always a chance. Yeah. But best case scenario – he doesn't see the field this year. I don't think so. Unless, uh, unless he takes, you know, makes significant strides in training camp, and Elliot and Chaz don't if they kind of stump their feet. Um, and I, that's that's one of the things I think people have to be careful about is we have heard good things about Reuter, but I think there's also kind of a, a rel- relative bias in play. Uh, if when Mitch Trubisky was here, for example, if there was a guy behind him on the depth chart where people were saying, wow, wait until you see this guy. He's really going to push Mitch for playing time. Then you'd be like, hmm, okay. So this guy's got to be legit. Versus this spring, when we all know what happened at quarterback last year, 
and you hear about, well, this guy's actually playing pretty good. And you say, okay, well, is that relative to Chaz and Nathan and how they've struggled last year? Or is this a sign that maybe, hey, he is you know, up there with like a Mitch type guy? So we, we don't know that yet. And so that's just kind of a, a word of caution. I, I did want to jump in on the question that, that Ross had. Um, I mean, last year, North Carolina had 25 completions of 25 yards or more. Clemson, playing two more games, had 26. Now, granted, North Carolina was middle of the pack nationally. Um, so it's, it's not like they were inept necessarily. But I think what people need to realize is the bread and butter of this offense is short passes, long gains. Matt Collins told me that time and time again, that that was what they preached. And that's the idea. You want to make easy passes for your quarterback. Remember, a lot of the throws in this offense are based on three-step drops. You know, Larry Fedora said years ago, if a quarterback gets sacked, it's the quarterback's fault. It's not the offensive line's fault because offensive line is not being tasked with a lot of path blocking. So quick passes, uh, you want to have good spacing, create those vertical seams, and then get the ball into the hands of a guy like Ron Switzer, and he can he can take it for a big gain. We've seen that time and time again. And so that gets into the personnel aspect. That gets into some of the line blocking. Uh, a lot of different components kind of went into that last year. It's just not a matter like we saw maybe with T.J. Yates and that pro-style offense where he's sitting back there with a the five- or seven-step drop and flinging the ball down the field to Brandon Tate or Hakeem Nix or whoever it may be. Uh, very different dynamic. Now, there are some of those plays, for sure. I mean, they have hit plays that they use, and they'll throw in there. Uh, but it's not just a matter of lining up and just flinging it deep. Uh, Seth Luttrell did that a little bit and had success with it, in part because he had guys like Mac Hollins and, and Switzer being able to run some of those routes. So uh, just kind of a, that's kind of the schematic part of it. Um, but Anthony Rattler-Williams clearly would be the guy that you would expect a lot of teams will kind of key in on. Uh, but if a guy you know, like Jordan Adams comes in and is able to, to make some big plays or Deami Brown's got the speed, those are the type of things they kind of look out for for some of those splash plays, maybe away from Ant where everybody's going to be looking at him. So you're telling me that Carolina with Chas Rett and Nathan Elliott had more a 25-yard pass plays per game than Clemson and their Final Four national champ uh, run Kelly Bryant quarterback. You're telling me that was that's an accurate statement. That is an accurate statement. <laughs> lies, damn lies, and statistics. Ross, Alabama uh, had 26 as well. Now, granted, I mean, that shouldn't be surprising, but – it's it's interesting how it works. People think you got to chunk it and sling it to be successful. Uh, Ross, freshman that'll play, true freshman. I, this one's pretty obvious, even though I'm still not convinced Jordan Adams steps foot on campus or at least steps foot in Oof. on a football field. But uh, I think Brown definitely. I would think perhaps Javante Williams I'm not sure about anybody else. Maybe one of the linebackers. If you get too much further beyond that, then you've probably had some injury issues. But your thoughts there? Yeah, I think, I mean, you answered half the question for me, but I will dive in. Just trying um, to help you I out. Think, yeah, I need it. No, actually, I was prepared for this when I pulled up the, the signing class early on in the pod. So, yeah, I think Diamond Brown definitely as a receiver and also as a kickoff returner, I think Fedor said in the spring. I think, um, yeah, I think Javante Williams has a chance. I think UNC's got some decent depth at running back now, um, but he could be a name to look for. I think William Barnes plays. Uh, I think he's too talented to to sit him. He could be a guy who leaves after his third season. Uh, who knows? I think UNC doesn't have any proven uh, interior linemen at the guard position. And I think William William Barnes will compete for a starting position uh, at guard for UNC from day one. Um, UNC's got some injury issues there with players who are coming back. Um, the most experienced guy would be Nick Polino, who, um, you know, a great kid. Not sure if he's, you know, the answer there. Um, so I think William Barnes is the most intriguing and exciting 
of the freshman who could really help out UNC's offensive line this season and just get that experience here and there in games to be a big-time player his sophomore season 2018. Of course, Jordan Adams will play if he enrolls. And then I think uh, Antonio Green is another receiver who could get some time as well. Um, you know, I think it was uh, our buddy Jason Staples raved about him and just his speed, his track speed, and what can do his receiver position. Um, going along down the recruiting class, you know, I think UNC's pretty good at cornerback. There's a lot of young guys still at cornerback that have been in the system for a year or two now. Uh, not really an issue there. Um, but who knows, maybe a guy like um, one of the defensive linemen, Jaheel, Ta- Jaleel, Jaheel Taylor or uh, Chris Collins could could see some reps. But I think that's about it right, right there. Ross, let me ask you about William Barnes because here here's my my take on it. I guess it's my I'm I'm struggling to formulate an opinion, so I need your help. Okay. So William Barnes, the say is all world, and he comes in and can compete. Then I reflect back to last year where North Carolina was playing essentially six guys all year, some of them banged up, most of them not healthy or close to 100% healthy all year. And yet the whole talk was, well, we've got to preserve that recruiting class. We've got to make sure that Billy Ross and Brian Anderson, we don't burn their red shirts. Um, so where's the disconnect? Why is there a disconnect of you know, North Carolina had playing time last year available? It would have helped for this year because now they're going into a season where they really have no experience other than Charlie Heck. So why – why is that? What did that occur? Why is there a disconnect there? Am I reading into that too much? I mean, are you saying I don't think that like guys like Billy Ross and Brian Anderson were ready to play? Is that kind of what you're the answer okay. you're looking for? I, mean, the... I, don't, I don't think any of the freshmen last year were ready. They had really green tackles um, with the names are escaping me um, on the outside. And... McKeithen. Yeah, Jordan Tucker and McKeithen out of South Carolina. I don't think those guys were anywhere close to being ready. Um, and I think the the freshman like Anderson, I mean, he's a he's a guy who's gonna kind of be I think a backup center for the majority of his career. And I think Billy Ross is, is I think they really like what he brings, but I think that, yeah, I think they just wanted more time for them to develop. But I think so William the idea Barnes is that William Barnes is just way far ahead of those guys in terms of ability when he steps foot on campus. I think so. I think just physically okay. and just – I mean, he's a he's a top 50 overall right. player. I mean, a guy went through the opening, a nasty, big, strong guy that I think – you know, I think he was the, the biggest recruiting win in that class, and I think um, he's going to be able to make an impact in year one. Okay. Uh, we will discuss this ad nauseum leading up to the season, but we got a bonus question. Uh, Greg, is this gambling thing – the Supreme Court ruling that big a deal? I mean, what does it change? And this is random, but what does it really change uh, for the everyday person that might want to spend a few dollars with their guy on on sports betting? Well, Ross and I were actually talking about that earlier today, and I think I think initially uh, the dialogue is going to be not really at the personal level, but it's going to be at the kind of the state level in terms of figuring out how to divvy up the money. Because the initial conversation a few weeks ago with the NBA, for example, was that they wanted 1% of total revenue. And when you factor in that, you know, basically uh, uh, Vegas, they're looking at a, you know, a profit of 4 to 5% of all of that. So now you're talking about our pro sports leagues wanting 20, 25% of that profit? Now, come on. Uh, but then you get the, you know, the individual states involved and they're going to want their cut. So that whole dialogue of the pro teams and the NCAA and Vegas and uh, you know, the, the state legislatures, how they all figure how that stuff works is going to be the most interesting part of it. Now, how does it affect the, the individual gambler? Uh, it's going to be more accessible. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of questions and a lot of concerns with that. Uh, in terms of, you know, some people say, hey, well, you know, everybody's been gambling. And if you're a gambling addict, at least now there's going to be regulations and there's gonna, they're going to have to provide help with gamblers, you know, anonymous and uh, help in that regard, which with the illegal market, you had none of that. 
So, I mean, that's, that's a heck of a silver lining, I guess, if you're going with that. Uh, but you are going to have more issues with that type of stuff. Uh, but I think you, I would assume, um, and you know, this is just me projecting, but with sites like 24-7, sites with ESPN, uh, you'll be able to say, hey, you just go to the scores page for the NBA and say, well, there's this game. Tell you what, I'm just going to put $10 on. And you can just click a box, and you'll be able to bet $10 on that particular game. I think we will get to that point eventually. Uh, again, it's going to matter at the state level. All that has to be worked out through you know, 50 states across the board, so that'll be a challenge. Uh, but I think just a little bit more of an ease, uh, ease of use for people that, that want to gamble. Uh, but I mean, if you want to gamble now, you can gamble. It's not hard to do. It's not like it's, uh, it's not like you're you're trying to buy pot, for example, and it's like, well, I'd do it if I could find somebody to to get it from. I mean, you can gamble very easily on a on a game. It's not hard to do. So I don't I don't think ultimately it's it's that big of a deal. It's just going to be a little bit easier to do. More money, more problems, and the athletes get nothing. I, Ross, I'm not even going to ask you a question on the on the gambling deal. I'm going to let you slide on that one because you can't kick it back to Greg after Greg's already. We need a whole podcast on the gambling once we kind of learn more about it and how it kind of affects sport. I mean, it's something it's, it's not really going to be figured out, I think, for years. Uh, if they make it though if they make it that i could just like click on something and spend twenty dollars or bet twenty dollars on the game you can do that now it's just illegal i mean it's just there's tons of apps you can bet with and and that's trouble it's like legalize that stuff and then it's gonna explode but if that's what floats your boat i don't gamble on things i can't control but i guess that's the that defeats the purpose guys it's been fun we've talked a lot We've covered a lot. Uh, you've got a week to figure out some more topics for us to cover next week, but that'll do it for this one. Ross, Greg, appreciate it. Thanks, Tommy. See you, Tommy. Thanks for listening to InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting.